So it's Thanksgiving, and we're talking about gratitude, and, uh, and really an intentional part on, decision on our part to just stir up uh, a sense of gratitude in our hearts during this season. And, th- and there's a couple of reasons why, and every week since we've been in this series called Eucharistia, which I'll talk more about that word at the Thanksgiving service, um, but, but the reason we're doing this is really twofold, because in our culture, we've discovered that gratitude is uh, an incredibly beneficial part of living our lives, that when you and I live out of a deep sense of gratitude, when we practice gratitude, when we feel gratitude and have those emotions, um, scientists, psychologists, sociologists, just about everybody has proven that a deep sense of gratitude has very long-term effects on our emotional state, on our mental state, on our spiritual health, on our physical health, on our relational health. There are all these implications of being grateful people. So when you and I can actually sit in a moment like this one this morning and we express gratitude, there's something that that does inside of our hearts. There's something that changes in our souls and kind of affects us significantly. And so we've been talking about this. We've been talking about it because I think we want to be grateful people. Um, I think if someone gave all of us the choice of, of who we could be stuck in an elevator with, which not that, that anyone really wants that, but if you had to choose... None of us would choose somebody who was ungrateful or entitled, right? You would want to be stuck with somebody who has a deep sense of gratitude. No one wants to be an an entitled person. No one wants to be around entitled people. So we've been talking about this whole idea of how do we stir this up. But also the second reality of this is that gratitude is elusive in our culture. And I said that in week one and week two, and I'll say it again this week. Gratitude is incredibly elusive. We live in a society that's constantly bombarding us with messages that say that whatever we have is not enough, that whatever we need is not what we currently have, and we just need one more thing. And so there's constant messaging from our culture. Not only that, I think our own hardwiring, all of us, most of us in this culture today, we tend to be very achievement-oriented. We're always looking to the next thing. We always know there's something else to be gained. And as a result of that, we have a difficult time being content We have a difficult time slowing down and recognizing all the good that we have. And so our gratitude tends to leak out of our lives and we forget to stop and be grateful. And so that's really what we're just trying to do is stir up gratitude and specifically to stir up our gratitude by looking at the generosity of God for us to stop and take a breath and to pause and look at our Father in heaven and say, thank you for all of the generosity you've extended to us. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at specific areas of God's generosity. First, we looked at the generosity of God's presence, that he's near to us, that he's with us. That's the most significant form of his generosity. Secondly, we looked at the generosity of God's provision for us. That was last week. And now this morning, what I want to talk about is the generosity of God's protection. God is generous with his protection. Now, um, As we dive into this, I also want to make sure that we address some of the tension uh, and some of the misunderstanding that exists when we start describing or talking about the protection that God generously gives us. In fact, I think um, think there's probably a few elephants in the room when we start talking about God's protection that I want to make sure we address today. First and foremost are some of the things that we pray for and the way our prayers seem to reveal some dysfunctional thinking. Um, some of you have heard this, but there are, there are times when people around the church world, and especially those of us that have been around it longer, we've heard people pray for things like um, a hedge of protection to surround somebody. Anybody ever heard that before? You're like praying for someone, you want a hedge of protection? That's always, always just sort of confused me. Um, that, like, what is it coming against me that a hedge is going to protect me from? It was like some band of rabid, you know, gophers or something. And so build that hedge and keep me safe from those. Like, it's always been kind of a strange thing. And so we, we pray this, though. We pray, Lord, give me a hedge of protection. You know that um, it's very difficult to find in the Bible where that's actually coming from and why we use it that way. The only individual that, they use, that, that that's really connected to that we can see is Job. And if you know the story of Job, the hedge didn't work real well, did it? 
like seems to be like that kind of failed him. So if you want to pray for me and pray for my protection, you can pray for like a nine foot tall, three foot thick wall with razor wire on the top of it. You can pray for that for me, right? Because I want more than a hedge. So, so we have these phrases that are about protection, about keeping us safe. Um, when people are traveling, there's a mobile version. We call this traveling mercies, right? This is, um, this is a hedge of protection on wheels, right? It just kind of goes with you wherever you go. And so when you pray traveling mercies, it just means they're dragging that hedge with them. I, I don't want to ruin anybody's day-to-day, but um, uh, traveling mercies is not biblical, just so you know, if you've prayed it, you're not in sin. I'm just going to relieve you of that. You're like, oh no, what have I done? No, it's just, it, there's really no place where we see traveling mercies being something we pray for. Um, and in fact, uh, here's, here's an interesting thing. When you read about um, travels in the Bible, you could see that maybe some of the people needed to know about traveling mercies, like the Apostle Paul, for instance. Um, listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about his travels. He says, Starting in verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's 39 for those of you that do math. Um, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Can somebody get the man some traveling mercies? Right? Like, at some point, you listen to the Apostle Paul's travels, and you go, like, either people weren't praying traveling mercies, or we just don't understand God's protection, right? Because this doesn't look to be God's protection. In fact, most often times when we speak about God's protection, um, we reveal something about the way we think about God's protection. In fact, that's always true. The things we talk about, the things we speak, reveal something about the things that we believe, right? Does that make sense? The way we talk reveals something about the way we believe, the way we think. And the way we think about protection is very different from the way that God speaks about protection, which means it's very different than the way that God thinks about protection. Are you with me in this? We talk about protection in a way that is different from how God talks about protection. And the difference between those two things, I believe, is so significant that when they are misaligned and they are not congruent, it creates dysfunction in our faith. I truly believe that when we don't understand this, it causes significant faith malfunction for us when we don't understand the nature of God's protection. And so what happens as a result of this is that many of us, when it comes to particularly this issue, we start to get confused by God. Like, God, what are you doing? Where we get disappointed with God. Like, God, why weren't you there in that particular moment? Let me give you an example. Um, a few years ago, Sherry and I, we were driving, we were driving back from a, a retreat. We were driving into Spokane. We were on Interstate 90. If anyone's ever driven that direction or driven into Spokane, you know, as you approach the city, the, the road takes a dive down. There's a hill that goes down into the, the urban core of, of Spokane. And so as we were driving, we were cruising along. We had two other people in the car with us. And just several miles or maybe a mile or so before we started that downhill, there was just this interesting nudge that I received. I, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was God's spirit just nudging me. I don't know what, what kind of came over me. But in this moment, I had this sense of, you know, Brad, you need to slow down a little bit. 
And so I just, I just backed off the accelerator a little sooner than I would have coming into town. I remember very distinctly just feeling like I just needed to be cautious moving ahead. As we came down into town, there was an on-ramp coming from another highway. And as we kind of crest this hill and begin down, this other on-ramp coming from this is this truck that is wildly out of control. It's careening in front of us. It slams into the concrete median, flips up on the barrier, and now is spinning on the barrier. Several times, the headlights are facing us. At one point, I wasn't sure if it was going to come down and drive drive the opposite direction on the freeway, but eventually through all the tumbling, it flips over the median and lands on its side and we move past it within seconds. And there's that moment, you know, if you've ever had this happen where everybody's just dead silent in the car, it's just like time stopped and we all sat and every one of us in that moment, every one of us in the car thought to ourselves, thank you God for your protection. In fact, as we drove in the silence, I just immediately remembered that moment just a few minutes before when I felt like the Lord kind of nudged me to slow down. It was such a strange thing. Like, I thought, what if I wouldn't have? What if I would have kept going? What if I would have been 100 or 200 yards further down the road? We would have been in the crosshairs of that reckless truck. Now, a lot of us have had moments like this, haven't we? How many of you have had a moment where something happened and you just went, God, I don't know what that was, but you just seemed to spare me. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. a bunch of us, right? So we have moments where we can celebrate God's protection, but, but I want to talk about something else for a moment. And I want to ask a bigger question, maybe a deeper question. And this is difficult for us to ask, but I think it's important we ask it. What about those moments or those times when God didn't protect? What about those moments? Because we could say we have those moments where we see God's hand and we go, God, I'm so grateful you just did all these things and you kept us safe in this moment. But a lot of us in the room, we have other moments, don't we? And we look at our life and we go, God, where were you in that moment? And why didn't you show up? Or what if you would have done, things could have been a little bit different. And so we've experienced tragedies. And so there's this tension where we can say at times, God, I'm so grateful for your protection. But most of us in the room also have other moments where we say, God, why weren't you there in that moment? Where were you in this time? I mean, look at the Apostle Paul's life, the the story, just that brief little section that I read for you. There's this hardship and struggle in the moment. And when you look at that moment, it certainly doesn't appear as if God is with him, right? Because if God is with him, those kinds of things don't happen to you. That's the the way we think in our culture today. And it's, it's not just Paul's life. I just think that's our life. That's our experience. Most of us, if not all of us, have experienced something where it felt like God wasn't looking out for us. Most of us have had a moment when you go, God, I'm just not sure. And we've asked questions like, were you really there? Are you really here in the middle of this? And if it hasn't happened to us, we at least know somebody who's navigating this. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with those moments? How do we process that information? Um, I, I have a friend who, who's a professor at Whitworth University, and his name's Jerry Sitzer. And in 1991, Jerry was um, out for a day with his family. He had all of his kids with him, his wife and his mom. And after this long day of being together, um, they were driving home down a two-lane highway. And um, while they were driving, they were really one of the only cars on the road. Jerry noticed up ahead of him there was another car that was sort of swerving across the line. And when the two cars came to the place where they would meet, the other driver crossed the center line and they had a high-speed head-on collision with each other. In the chaos of the moment, there was only one door in the minivan that worked, and so Jerry's trying to get his kids out. In the moment of trying to get his kids and his wife and his mom out, he realizes that in that moment, in that instant, his mother was killed, his wife was killed, and one of his daughters was killed. 
standing on the side of the road realizing that three generations of women have just been taken from his life in just that split second of a moment. And when you read Jerry's story, you hear him tell you about what happened in his life, there's this party that just goes, how do you explain this? How do you explain me missing an accident and his family being caught in that one? How do you explain this as it relates to God's protection? In fact, in one of the books that, that Jerry's written, a book called A Grace Disguised, he writes this. He says, we shivered with fear before the disorderliness of tragedy. Because tragedy is, there's disorder in tragedy, isn't there? If there was to be suffering, we at least wanted a reason for it, predictability to it, and preparation to endure it. The randomness terrified us. And then he says just a few paragraphs later, he says, for the last few years, my predominant emotion has been a nervous and doleful bewilderment. Why, I have repeatedly asked myself, did it happen to us? Why were we at just that place, at just that time, under those circumstances? Even a pause at a stop sign, a last-minute switch of seats before departure, a slower or faster rate of acceleration after a turn would have spared us all unspeakable suffering. See, I can't talk about the topic of God's protection without us also thinking about the opposite of God's protection. What about those times when it seems like God has let us down? Um, you're going to learn this about me, and, and some of you, you might appreciate this. Others of you, you may not like this over the long haul. I'm just going to warn you. Um, but when we come up against difficult questions, I truly want us to dive into these things. Because I really believe that our intimacy with God is hampered or hindered when we gloss over or we ignore these incongruent moments in our faith. And we go, yeah, I don't know. Like, I believe God protects, but then there's this stuff I can't explain. If we don't dive into that and try to resolve that, I believe it malfunctions our faith. And so I want us to dig into these things. I want us to answer what's going on with the seemingly random nature and the unpredictability of God's protection. What does this mean for us? And is there something that we're missing? Is there something that we need to see that, that we're currently not seeing? How do we explain this, especially when I'm going to stand here and say, let's celebrate God's generous protection? Are you with me on this? Are you guys tracking? So, so here, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see, the, the randomness of all of this and, and how we respond and the insecurities that we feel and the way it messes with us, um, it doesn't just keep us from gratitude. It actually causes us to misunderstand what God is actually promising us when he says he'll protect us. In fact, here's, here's a question for you. When we talk about God's protection, are we talking about physical safety? Like when we pray for a hedge of protection or traveling mercies, usually, and this is our, our go-to, when we say those kinds of things, and I know not all of you do, but some of us have thought of those things, when we pray for other people, are we praying for God's protection, and is that protection centered around physical well-being, physical safety? So I think we need to answer that question and, and really understand, do you think that's what God is talking about? When God says, I'm going to offer you my protection, is he talking about physical preservation? Is he saying you're going to have a smooth and easy existence, that there won't be any hardship or pain? Or is God potentially talking about something else? I want to pull the curtain back and open our eyes to some things this morning that, that maybe we seldom see, and, and I think it's going to help us really understand God's promise that he's making, making us, and I think we may actually see God's keeping the promise better than we ever imagined. Uh, in order to do that, I want to look at the life of a, of a particular individual. He's in the book of Genesis, and his name is Joseph, and, and some of you that have been around church and the Bible, you're maybe a little more familiar with Joseph, but I want to give you a brief summary of his story just in case you're not. Um, Joseph is born to a, an individual named Jacob, and he has a number of brothers. Now, uh, among these brothers, Joseph is the absolute favorite. 
Uh, he is loved by his father more than the others. And this is like, you know, you're not allowed to pick favorites as a parent. Um, Jacob didn't hear that rule. And he just loved Joseph more. It's like somebody should have told him. So he gives him this beautiful coat and he gives him special treatment and he's always loved a little bit more. And so there's this bitterness that rises up inside of his brother's hearts. And eventually they betray him when, one day when they're out in the fields together and they throw him in a well. They're trying to decide what to do. Do we kill him? Do we just abandon him? Whatever it might be. And there are some traders that come along and they decide we're going to sell him. And so they sell him literally to these traders, they take his coat, they smear blood all over it, they go home to Jacob and they say, your favorite son's been, been killed. And so there's this memorial, there's this mourning that happens as a result of this. Meanwhile, Joseph is being carried off by these individuals who eventually get to Egypt. When they get to Egypt, they sell him to an individual named Potiphar and he becomes a servant in Potiphar's house. Now, while he's living in Potiphar's house, he gains favor as a slave. And he slowly climbs to a position where he's the head of the household. Now, also during this time, Potiphar's wife becomes attracted to Joseph. Joseph, being a man of integrity, says, I'll have none of it. But eventually, her advances keep coming, and then he's accused. And Potiphar believes the accusation, and Joseph is now thrown into prison. He's thrown into prison, and again, he, the same sort of storyline follows, where he starts at the bottom, but he starts earning favor with the other prisoners and even with the warden. In fact, at one point, it says that he gained favor with the warden, which, by the way, if that's the highlight of your year, you're not having a good year, right? Like, hey, what's been going well? You know, the, the warden and I are getting along really well. You're in prison, right? unjustly. You've been accused. You shouldn't be there. So he's in the prison. And then there's another moment of betrayal that happens in his life. I won't get into the details, but it means he has a much longer prison sentence than he should have. And all the while, as you read the story of Joseph, there is this statement that keeps being made in the book of Genesis about his life. And it's a really troubling, challenging statement. Because over and over again, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And so here we have the Bible, the Bible that is the story that's showing us humanity, how we live and relate to the God that created us, opening our eyes to what this world is and how we move in relationship with God. And in this story, there is an example of an individual who is experiencing hardship, who is experiencing betrayal. There are all these random things that keep happening to him. And simultaneously, it says that in the middle of those hardships, in the middle of those valleys, that the Lord is with him in those things. And I don't know about you, but coming from the culture that, that I live in, I look at it and say, really? Because if the Lord is with you, this is the way we, we think, if the Lord is with you, the circumstances of your life aren't supposed to look this way. Isn't that the way that we think? If the Lord is with Joseph, Joseph doesn't get thrown in a well. If the Lord is with Joseph, Joseph doesn't end up a slave. If the Lord is with Joseph, he doesn't end up in jail. If the Lord is with Joseph, his highlight of the year is not, I made friends with the warden. Are you with me on this? We think if the Lord is with Joseph, none of that stuff happens and the opposite should be happening, right? There's nothing in the circumstances of Joseph's life that indicates from our perspective that God is in his life. And yet it says over and over again, regardless of the circumstances, that the Lord was with Joseph. Now, eventually he gets out of prison and when he does, um, he, he's placed in this position of power, and he's overseeing the storehouses of food, 
and the supplies for the nation of Egypt. And then there's this famine that hits the region. And as a result of this famine, years and years down the road, Joseph's brothers, they wind up coming back or coming to Egypt to look for supplies so that their families can survive. And so they come to Egypt. They have no idea what's ever happened to their brother. They get there, and they have to meet this guy who oversees the storehouses. And by the way, this is that part where you just go, God, thank you for revenge, right? Thank you. Anyone that's had big brothers that treated them wrong, God, thank you for revenge, right? So Joseph sees them, and then we read this. Listen to what happens. This is so challenging for us to face. Genesis chapter 45, verse 4 says, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please, because I'm going to take you to the woodshed, right? (laughs) No, listen to this. It says, They came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And then listen to what he says next. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there'll be neither plowing or harvest. And then he says it again. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then he says it again. So it was not you who sent me here. It was God who put me in the well and sold me into slavery and had me get falsely accused and spend years in prison that I didn't deserve. It wasn't you. It was God He made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Can we just pause for a moment and just let that sink in? It wasn't you who sent me. It was God. Anybody else challenged by this? This is one of those things that just kind of gets into my heart. Like, it was God who sent me here. It was God who was with me here. And it's, and it's God who has made this reunion possible. That's what he's saying to them. I, I listen to this, and there's this part of me, it's like a Hallmark movie in some ways, right? It's like, do things really end this way? Except this Hallmark movie is sponsored by God, the maker of all things, and deliverer of pain and suffering, right? Like, what is this all about? This is so challenging for me. And at the same time, I think it reveals a dysfunction in my faith, and maybe it reveals a dysfunction in your thinking around faith and a misunderstanding around God's protection. Let me just ask you this. Could it be, could it be that God is with us and even protecting us when our circumstances scream the opposite? Could could it be possible that when God says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to protect you, when he offers his protection, could it be that the protection that God is offering us is separated from the physical reality that we find ourselves living in? Could it be that his protection is separate from the circumstances that we might be navigating? Is that possible that what God has promised is very different from what we expected, but he's still nonetheless with us and protecting us? Is that possible? See, see, Joseph chose to believe God and trust that he was with him and protecting him even when his circumstances screamed the opposite. So what if in the middle of the randomness, the unpredictability of this life that we're living, where you just go, I don't, why does that happen to them and this happened to me? What if in the middle of this there was actually something predictable and what if what was predictable was God's protection but it was a different form of protection? I've just observed enough life in my own life and and just looking at human history to say, this thing's unpredictable. 
This life, we don't know what's going to happen next. And for many of us, we're navigating difficult circumstances and we're just wrestling with God. And we have mistrust because of it. But what if we've missed what he's actually saying? What if because of our cultural obsession with safety and, and the material and the physical, we've actually missed seeing what God has actually promised us? So with that in view, I want us to look at a couple of familiar passages. Uh, again, those of us that are around the church, I'm going to read some passages that might be a little bit more familiar to us, but I want us to read them from that view. What if God's saying something different than what we've ever heard before? I want us to see some things that maybe we haven't seen before. So Psalm 139 Starting in verse 7, this is a very well-known psalm. The psalmist says this, and he's talking about God's presence. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And then verse 11, listen to this. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. This is a well-known psalm speaking of God's presence and his protection, right? You're with me no matter where I go, no matter what I do, all the different places I could be, you are there. But I want you to take note of verse 11. Because he doesn't say that the darkness is gone, he just says that the darkness is as light to you. When the darkness covers me, you are there. He's not denying the darkness. In fact, what he's saying is, God, you are in the dark with me. In this moment where it seems as if the sun has discontinued to shine in my life, you're actually there. You don't eliminate that moment. You're not, you're not eradicating that moment. You're not just beaming me out of that moment. But in that moment, God, you are there. We have this tendency to believe that if God shows up in the dark, then the dark goes away. But when the psalmist is writing of God's presence, he's saying, God is with you even in the dark. He'll navigate this with you. Another psalm, Psalm 46, verse 1, says this. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge and our strength. Believe that, amen? Right? He is our help in time of trouble. Amen? Now notice this. So he's with us. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our help in the time of trouble. But then look at what this says. He says, we will not fear, and then he says, though. We will not fear, although or even though the earth gives way, even though the mountains slide into the sea, and the seas foam and crash, and the mountains tremble, even though those things happen, we will not fear. You know what he's saying is, that stuff is still going to happen. The mountains are trembling. And they're sliding into the sea and the oceans are crashing against us. There is this chaos, this picture of devastation and destruction of the world around us crumbling. It's more than just a physical description. It's a metaphor for certain seasons of life, isn't it? 
There are times when everything falls, falls apart around us. There are people that are suddenly taken from us. There's jobs that we lose. There's checks that never come in the mail. There's bills we can't pay. There's frustrations with children, frustrations with parents. There's all these sorts of things that take place in our life where we, we deal with things, and it's like life is crumbling around us in these moments, and then we wonder, God, where are you? And what the psalmist is saying here is he's right there in the middle of it with you. He's not denying that these things happen. You know, and our tendency is to say, well, Lord, if you're going to calm my heart, why don't you calm my circumstances? But God says, no, I'm going to calm your heart, even though the circumstances might not change, even though it might be difficult. This stuff still happens. Mountains are still going to crumble. Seas are still going to roar. These things are going to take place. And God is our refuge. Just hear this. God is our refuge in the middle of it. He protects us. While that is going on, he's protecting us. So, so what if? What if the protection offered by God is one that transcends the circumstances and is outside of our physical experience? What if the promise God has made to protect us is actually a protection that extends beyond the physical circumstantial moments of our life? Let me just jump to the New Testament. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This is another um, really familiar passage for many of us. And Paul really begins the same place that, that the psalmist begins with God's presence. Listen, verse, verse 5, the second half of it, he says, the Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is near. And so there's, there are things that happen when God is near you, right? Like with Joseph, you get thrown in prison. Just kidding. Um, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard what? Your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that. The Lord being near brings peace, and the peace of God guards, it protects, but it doesn't protect our ligaments. He doesn't say it protects your muscles, your skeletal system. It protects your heart. It protects your mind. I mean, there, there's an elimination of certain things from God's presence, but, but it doesn't seem to indicate that it's physical pain. Are you picking this up? What it eliminates is anxiety. What it eliminates is peace. His presence addresses his heart, our hearts and, and our minds, our souls. He's guarding us. He's protecting us. See, see, all of this together seems to be indicating that what God is interested in protecting and what he's promised to protect us from is, is separate from the pain, the struggle that we might be going through, that there's something else he's guarding that isn't just about our circumstances or our physical experience. In fact, there are, there are some people that would argue this, and I, and I tend to agree, that one of the greatest ways that we experience God's protection, one of the ways that we experience God's intimacy is when we actually walk through those unpredictable, painful moments. Brendan Manning, uh, author, says this. He says, the dominant characteristic of an authentic spiritual life is the gratitude that flows from trust. Not only for all the gifts that I receive from God, but gratitude for all the suffering. Because in that purifying experience, suffering has often been the shortest path to intimacy with God. So an authentic spiritual life is characterized by a gratitude that flows from trust, 
not just for the good gifts I receive, but even the tragedies that I've navigated with him near me. That's gratitude. So, so maybe you ask, you know, Brad, do you pray for your kids? Yep, I do. Do I pray for their physical safety? Yep, I do. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for those things. Um, do I worry when they're on the road and apart from me? Absolutely, I do. But what I have come to realize is this, that God's greatest form of protection is for that which is most important for our relationship with him, and that is our hearts, our souls, and our minds. What God wants to protect is our hearts. He wants to guard your heart. He wants to guard your soul. He wants to guard your mind because those things, if you keep those connected to him, they will see you through all of the ups and the downs and the valleys and the peaks of this life that we're living. God is interested in protecting that which is most important. And what is most important is not your physical body. It's your heart. It's your soul. It's your mind. He's protecting us. He's protecting us from fear. Most of our prayers are around fear. And God says, no, no, wait a second. I know the circumstances are random. He says, I can give you peace in the middle of those random, unpredictable circumstances. He, he, can, he can free us from anxiety. He's protecting us from stress. He's protecting us from despair. He's protecting us from a meaningless life. Even in the swirling storm, even when there's darkness, even amidst the unpredictable, unexplainable things in life that are painful, he's there. My friend Jerry, um, who experienced that car accident, he says this in another place in, in his writing. He says, the problem of expecting to live in a perfectly fair world is that there is no grace in that world. For grace is grace only when it's undeserved. We have a God who has been generous with his protection and his presence and his provision. And sometimes it doesn't look the way our culture says it should look, but that doesn't mean our God has been unfaithful to us. Amen? He's there for us. He's offered protection for our hearts and our souls and our minds. And that is the word from a loving Heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? You know, we can look back on the Apostle Paul's life and all of his hardship and his struggles, or we can look at the life of Joseph and everything that he went through. And in hindsight, we can say, well, I, I see God's hand in all of that. But I think what makes both of them remarkable is that somehow in the middle of that, they see what we see at the end. They were able to see God being with them there. And so this morning, I wanna offer a benediction that invites us to be like them and to see now what someday I think we'll look back on and say, I just see God's hand and his fingerprints all over my life. So let me offer this to you. May you be men and women who see the goodness of God, not just in hindsight, but even in the hardship. And may you experience his grace and his mercy. May you be one who lives a life of faith regardless of your circumstances. And may the peace of God guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our prayer team's available this morning. If you want to pray with somebody, they'll be down front. You guys have an amazing week. If you want to help pack Thanksgiving boxes, I think Alex said it's that direction. 
And uh, we will see you guys either Thanksgiving or next Sunday. Have an amazing week. See you later.